welcome to another episode of the podcast. Uh, my name is Philip Coleman. I'll be your host today. And on today's episode of the podcast, we'll be discussing chapter two of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Pete Scazzaro. I'm joined today by Tyler Wolf. Hey guys, how's it going? It's good to be back on the podcast. Uh, I had a really fun week. Um, I've been discussing this chapter uh, with, a, with quite a few people this week. It's been a blast. Tyler was willing to stand in for me this week because I had a few meetings on Monday and Tuesday, so I was not able to attend the in-person book club discussions. So for the sake of our conversation today on the podcast, Tyler will probably have more insight. Well, he'll definitely have more insight into the conversations that were had in person, some of the perspectives that were brought up by different folks who came and talked to us about this chapter uh, on Monday and Tuesday of this week. Whereas I'm going to try to ask some larger, maybe higher level questions, zoomed out a little bit about some of the themes from the chapter, and we'll also interact with a handful of quotes as we go. Just a reminder to you, if you're listening, this is not a reiteration of the content of chapter two of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And our objective is not to give you the content in such a way where you would not need to read the chapter. So if at this point in the podcast, you've not already listened to chapter two of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, the title of the chapter is Knowing Yourself That You May Know God. I recommend that you just pause here and maybe take an hour or two, work your way through chapter two, and then come back. And I think our discussion will be a little bit more valuable to you that way. So Tyler, why don't you kick us off uh, from book club, thinking through Monday and Tuesday, what was a question that maybe emerged? Uh, and then maybe you and I can just pick on that a little bit from a couple of different perspectives. Yeah, sure thing. Uh, I think we, we we started the conversation both days and we just kind of planted ourselves on what I called the thesis. It was kind of the first thing he said. It's the very first paragraph um, and he, I think he makes the argument that uh, knowing yourself and knowing God are just intri- int- intimately, intricately intertwined, uh, and uh, they one uh, one informs the other uh, in a lot of different ways, and the other informs the first as well. So, uh, what what is your perspective on how that works? How knowing yourself can uh, help you know God? Just kind of a broad view. Yeah, when I read through the chapter, um, and I want to I want to read this out loud in just a minute. The, there's I think five or six quotes across the first page or two that come from Christians of very different tribes and traditions, which is helpful to me because I have two on that page that I really like, and then there's one where I kind of go, uh, would I listen to that person? But those quotes together convince me that regardless of what theological tribe you come from, whether you call yourself a Calvinist or an Arminian, whether you're a Baptist or a Presbyterian, I think even Protestant versus Catholic, there's still uh, some source material in this chapter that encourages us to take an inward look and to expect out of that inward look that we're going to learn some things about God, about his character, about his nature. So here's how I'd answer that question. I think that uh, first of all, you have to start with the beginning of the Bible. God himself makes it clear that his intention in creating humanity is to create smaller versions of himself, limited, whereas he's unlimited. So I don't think that we are ourselves little gods, but we look like little gods to God. He put his image on us. When he looks at us, he sees whatever that is, whether it be a spiritual imprint or maybe even physical to a certain degree. I think the reason that that matters for the sake of this book is because a lot of times when we are unwilling to face what we're experiencing emotionally, we have to also wall off parts of ourselves. So I had a great conversation with somebody on Monday who read the book and had some questions and their perspective was, how do we differentiate between the different ways that we define feelings? Sometimes we use the word feeling to talk about a physical sensation. I feel hungry. I feel tired. Sometimes we use feeling to talk about an emotion. I feel angry. I feel sad. Sometimes we use feeling to indicate our will. I feel like doing something. Mm-hmm. I feel like I should go to the mall. I feel like I haven't worked enough this week. I feel like I'm distant from my spouse. And so I think that beginning to understand that we're not just using our feelings as an excuse Uh, I think some folks have been a little bit wary of that, right? If I become too emotional, maybe uh, I'm going to start just laying down the emotion card and saying, well, yeah, I flew off the handle at you, but I'm an angry guy and I felt angry, so I'm justified to do it. What's more important than sort of adopting these emotions as characteristics is to simply become a person who can admit, I am angry sometimes. I want to do what's wrong sometimes. And not immediately jump in the deep end of the pool and start to dissect why that is and where it came from and what it means, but just take a little bit of ownership. And I think that as we do that, what we'll come to understand is the image of God in us is a little bit of what we're identifying. Maybe not the sinful tendency, but the ability to have the tendency is itself reflective of the divine. So I'll give you a very clear example of what I'm talking about. When we look at the life of Jesus, we see him express emotion lots of times. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that that doesn't quite jive with the image of Christ that we hold in our heads in 2022 when we worship in church, when we're in a small group. We think that maybe becoming more like Christ for me would mean becoming smarter, becoming just a better servant, maybe becoming less concerned with what I feel or what I sense or what I like or think. Yet we see Jesus respond and react. We have to look at Jesus and agree that he's perfect. So he's the perfect example of humanity and he's the perfect expression of God into the human world. And so if Jesus is experiencing emotion, then not only do I learn from his example that I should be too, and if I'm not, something is out of sync between me and Jesus, but also Jesus having been the expression of the divine of God himself teaches me that being made in God's image is another reason why I should be expressive. So there's something inherent to being a human being that means I should be able to experience and express emotion. And there's something about following Jesus that leads me to experience and express emotion. So if I can, let me borrow your book really quick. I want to read that Calvin quote. This is on the very first page of the chapter, page 39. John Calvin wrote this in 1530, uh, which is... 13 years into the Reformation, he said, our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts. So wisdom has two pieces. Half of that is the knowledge of God and the other is the knowledge of ourselves. Now here's what's really interesting. He says, but as these are connected together by many ties, as they're really integrated, knowing God, knowing myself, it is not easy to determine which of those two comes first, proceeds and gives birth to the other. So Calvin lays it out as a chicken and egg thing. Now, half of that I can agree with easily, right? I can say, sure, knowing God is a great and easy way for me to know myself better. And from what I understand, some of the discussion that you guys had on one of the book club days went that direction. You had at least a couple of voices maybe who were saying, what I'm used to and what I know is knowing God by knowing the scriptures, and that's how I'll get to know myself. I don't don't think Calvin would argue with that, but I think he's saying there's a whole other piece of the puzzle that we probably don't talk about a lot in our modern churches, which is by getting to know my own wiring, my tendencies, the capacities I have to feel and think and express, because I am made in the image of God, I am in some way looking at an imprint. I'm looking at a, a picture painted of God or taken of God. It's not a perfect representation of him, but it's the image of him. And I just think that's a really freeing thing for me. If I, if, I can, if I can trust that that's true, the practical application of that in my life is that then when I meet with God, I don't need to hide any of that stuff from him because all I'm doing is showing him the things that he made me to do. It, it would be like being really embarrassed to have to take your car into the dealership to have it repaired. The dealer is the one who should be embarrassed if anybody because they sold you the car that needs the repair, not you. And so I don't think God's embarrassed of our emotional state at all or how we express ourselves, but I do think that we can gain greater confidence coming into his presence if we can remember that really all we're doing is what we were wired to do. Maybe there's a negative expression happening. Maybe we're being tempted into sin by the way that we feel. Those are symptoms of the world we live in and the brokenness between us and God, but they are not themselves wrong things within our human nature. So long answer, but I think that you're right. That's the foundation of this chapter. If we can't accept that there's some truth to the idea that knowing myself leads me to know God, we're probably going to have a hard time with the rest of this chapter. So let me throw the ball back to you. A little later in the chapter, Pete talks about one of the ways that we don't put ourselves in touch with our true self, we don't know ourselves well, is we build behaviors and patterns and even sometimes whole relationships with a spouse, with a parent, with a child, where we aren't really who we are. There's a false self. And to him, he equates that with living out other people's expectations. The idea being, if you lived alone on a mountainside with nobody around you, you would only live out who you really are because there'd be nobody putting any external pressure on you. But we don't. We go to a big church. We have a community group we're a part of. We have uh, family and friends that live close by, our own children. We have bosses. All of those people expect us to be and do certain things. How have you experienced in your own life living out other people's expectations And can you bring to mind any general comments that were maybe made in book club that were helpful along this line of thought? Yeah, absolutely. He introduces this idea uh, through a personal story of conflict he was having with his wife. Uh, uh, If you've been reading up on the book, there's there's a couple of these stories already at this point. Um, But that he felt like he was really unprepared to deal uh, with the conflict by being a whatever, however many generations, Scazzaro. Um, he never really processed it as, I'm Pete Scazzaro, and here's how I deal with this. It was, I am my mother's son. My mother would never do this. The written, unwritten, spoken, and unspoken expectations that are on this relationship, uh, they weren't even his. They were just, ge- they were a generational thing. And I, I totally relate to that. Uh, there are a lot of different uh, uh, 
spoken and unspoken expectations that we kind of imprint on ourselves. That could be your, your work environment, your, uh, maybe your supervisor ex- expectations about the way you work rather than the quality of your work, your family, your family of origin even. Uh, and I mean, uh, specifically the family that you live with now versus the family that raised you. Um, I think that, gosh, your church community, uh, I can think of every church I've ever been a part of, um, the expectations very specifically, uh, that were always unwritten, but always expected on the pastor's wives. Uh, and I thought that was crazy. Nobody ever said that they had to be at every event and they had to act a certain way, but they certainly noticed when those things weren't true. And I just think that's unfair. There are a lot of, uh, uh spoken and unspoken things in our own lives. Uh, and it's hard to break out of. I can tell you that, uh, Being a wolf uh, has not prepared me for several things. Uh, I have a story that's not very uh, uncommon. Uh, Absentee father. My Mm. mother worked very hard to raise uh, me and my brothers. She would sometimes work two and three jobs just to make ends meet. And so she wasn't around a lot. We would go to grandma's house. We had grandpa, but grandpa was a fisherman, so he was gone a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, now I'm a father of three children, and I'm a husband of of a wonderful wife, Um, but I don't really have a lot of experience in that realm growing up. I didn't get to watch a father. I, the, the men in my life consistently failed me. And so I've kind of, uh, uh, I've had to work through things backwards. And that's just my own story. I just go, well, I know what I'm not supposed to do, kind of. <laughs> By example, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, uh, he kind of continues on to talk about a lot of the, the emotions that we feel. Um, and we're, if we're speaking about unspoken rules, uh, I think a lot of Christians have probably some unspoken rules that there are some emotions that are kind of, uh, that are quote unquote wrong uh, to not be trusted. He lists several uh, um, emotions starting on page 43 of the book under the heading feelings in the beginning of a revolution. Uh, but there are things like anger, uh, sadness, fear. Uh, there's love, surprise, there's disgust. And shame. Um, Philip, I want to ask you, like, how can we really work on accepting and acknowledging these feelings uh, without kind of the pitfall of, of maybe even like making them our own God or really uh, trusting in these feelings in a way that eventually will bring us the direction of rebellion against God? Because I think that's a fear in a lot of our lives. I think so too. And I think sometimes that fear uh, of if I feel this way, then I am necessarily in sin. I think that's weaponized a lot. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, you and I are children of the nineties. Well, that's not unfortunate. I think the nineties were a pretty bomb time to grow up personally. But one of the side effects of that in the evangelical world is the very high influence of a person named James Dobson. The focus on the family movement uh, in some ways sort of took over Colorado Springs and then more of the evangelical world sort of has orbited that area. I don't think everything James Dobson says or teaches is wrong. I think sometimes the practical parts of his parenting are really good. I think the mistake that he makes is he feels that he has to root those in Scripture, and he can't really. And so he has to sort of stretch Scripture, which to me is worse than just saying, hey, this is just functionally a good idea. It's just pragmatic. It works out. Kids like it. It turns them into good adults. One of the things I think that came out of Focus on the Family is uh, punitive, so punishment for certain emotions. If a child is angry or expresses anger, not breaks something with their hands, that's an action, but simply shows with their body without hurting themselves or anybody else that they are angry. In a lot of evangelical homes in the 90s and 2000s, that was considered really bad and would get a parent sort of frowned upon at large evangelical churches if your kid wasn't always quiet in worship um, or went to a vacation Bible school and had an outburst because another kid picked on him. There was this idea of... And I think what it did to us is it forced those of us who were kids sometimes to disassociate. Um, but it, but this idea that you you need to be positive because the gospel is good news, and if you've been transformed by the good news, then everything is good news, is positive. Um, you still get some of this on certain Christian radio stations. I sent you a text a week or two ago that I listened to K-Love for about yeah, 20 minutes. I think I Holy called cow. it the cult of positivity. Uh, probably a pretty scathing review. And if you listen to Caleb, you're allowed to do that as well within your rights as a believer. I don't think it's going to lead you anywhere you shouldn't go. But from my perspective, I don't do a lot of uh, positive radio or positive, just positive music. I think that's what it boils down to. I think oftentimes the sense of I can't be afraid, I can't be anxious, I can't be disgusted, I can't be ashamed, whatever, or I can't show those things is because the expectation in the church world is that I only be positive, that God is only positive. But that's not the Bible's story. The story of human history begins right out of the gate with immense negativity and people stay negative 
the entire time, like through the time that we live all the way to the end, things keep going wrong. That's the magnitude of the brokenness of sin and rebellion, wickedness, iniquity, the words the Bible uses. So for me, you ask the question, how can I consider these feelings without worrying that they're going to take me down a a path of rebellion? We have to differentiate between what we're experiencing and what we are actually doing. Hmm. I am not what I do. I can be, I can exist without having to take any action. My body will naturally, I'll keep breathing, my heart will beat. I can sit in a room and look at the wall and just be and let the emotions come through me that are coming. So for instance, in my life, uh, as a, the personality type that I am, I like to use the personality spectrum called the Enneagram. I'm a type eight. Um, I pretty much process any emotion as anger. I, I convert happiness into anger. I convert boredom into anger. I convert uh, fear into anger. And so I've spent a lot of, proportionally, a lot of minutes a day allowing that anger to well up within me and then go back down again. That's a lot of what I do when I'm in prayer is acknowledge to God why I am frustrated, why I'm irritated. Those are the nice words I use because I don't like to say that I'm angry all day long. But I, but I have to just let that kind of come through me, if that makes sense, and then go out. I'm not in sin for having an anger that's inappropriate, but I could be in sin if I follow that anger into action that is inappropriate. So that's the difference. Unfortunately, some of us have been parented or even led at churches by people who equate the feeling with the action, and it's not the same thing. Uh, maybe a helpful parallel here is in the conversation around homosexuality in, with regards to church, church membership, things like that. Um, there's a, an opinion that I agree with, a perspective that I think is rooted in science and com, um, cooperates with the Bible's perspective, that a person who is tempted toward homosexual behavior is not categorically a homosexual by practice. So to choose to sleep with a person of the same sex, to do so actively, regularly, and in rebellion of God, that would exclude you from church membership at our church and many others. And I would question the genuine faith of a person who lives that lifestyle over years or decades at a time. I think that's rebellion. But I think that there's room for a person in church membership at a church, full church membership, to be welcomed in who understands in their heart that they have some curiosity or even attraction toward people of the same gender. The decision to not act on that is a significant decision. It separates those two categories apart. So if I feel shame, then I'm a person who feels shame. But if out of that shame, I run to pornography, I run to medicate myself with substances, alcohol, I run into a bad relationship, then what I have done is follow a feeling that's simply an indicator. It's a part of my heads up display uh, to, to let me know what it is I'm experiencing and why, what's happening to me and why. Um, that's different than actually taking the action and following it forward. So in summary, if I've been unclear or vague at all, I think you should consider all the feelings that you're having. I think you should ask yourself where they're coming from and what's causing them. And if you can do that without having to immediately act on them, now you've gained agency. You've taken a big step toward emotional, spiritual health, in my opinion. I want to read one quote from Dallas Willard. This is from The Divine Conspiracy, and it's one of my favorite things that he says in the whole book. Um, The chapter is called What Jesus Knew, and it explains sort of the unique perspective that Jesus had that informed some of his teaching. That's so hard for us to understand. Willard's talking about what it means to be a human being and how your body is the part of you that other people can sense. It's through your body, it's through your mouth, it's through your body language, your eyes, your hands, that you make yourself known to other people, which you'd think, okay, philosophically, that's a no-brainer, right? Nobody's, nobody, except maybe via cell phone or talking on the phone, has made themselves known to somebody else who's not physically with them. But here's what he says. He makes this connection between being a child and having a lot of innocence to what we become as adults, which I think it's going to be a good example here of what it's like to be emotionally unhealthy. So he says, interestingly, quote unquote, growing up, what we call growing up in our culture is largely a matter of learning to hide our spirit. So our emotional center behind our face, our eyes, and our language. Growing up is learning to hide our spirit behind our face, eyes, and language. Why Dallas? He says, so that we can evade and manage other people. I don't want you to know how I feel because if you know how I feel, you'll take advantage of me. That's a lesson I learned as a child. So as an adult, I don't show you how I feel. I won't share with you what's going on inside of me. I want to evade and manage others so that I can achieve what I want and I can avoid what I fear. Here's the contrast. The child's face is a constant epiphany, meaning it is always telling you what is really going on because the child has not yet learned how to hide, how to do the thing the grown-up does. A child cannot manage its face. 
This is also true of adults in moments of great feeling, which is one reason why feeling is both greatly treasured, and then I think this is spot on for where we are in the process with this book, and is also greatly feared. Because when we feel a lot, we can't hide anymore. Um, A connection for me is, you probably had this experience, Tyler, anytime in the last uh, 10 years of your life that you've seen a grown-up cry, what's the very first thing they say when they're crying? Oh, it's, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Why do we feel like we have to automatically apologize for a thing that all of us do? And I mean, maybe there's like three men out there listening who are like, I've never cried since the 1960s. But if you haven't, I hope you get a good one soon. It can be very cathartic. But I just think that's an interesting byproduct of a misunderstanding of these emotions is that I have to hide them from you either because I don't trust you and I think you're going to attack me because you don't have emotional health or because I don't trust them or myself and I want to hide and just show you the good Christian version of me that I've worked so hard to create and build instead of the real version of me that still mourns and grieves and fears and worries and has a hard time with the normal things that happen in life. Um, I want to ask you, Tyler, specifically on page 46 of the book, um, Pete makes a statement about our physiology, about our physical structure that I think ties into the conversation that you and I are having right now. He says something like, God has designed our physiology in order to communicate with us through our bodies, that by what we feel, sometimes we may be receiving an an indicator from God of what he wants or what he thinks or or just even kind of a wake-up call maybe if there's something that we've been ignoring. Can you bat that ball around a little bit and does anything come to mind as you do from the discussion that happened this week in book club? Oh, sure, absolutely. Um, We're talking about just being aware uh, and being able to reflect and respond uh, to our feelings. Uh, Those feelings are true even, even if we don't acknowledge them. Even if we don't know what they are, regardless, if we are angry, if we feel angry, we are going to have anger in our life even if we don't uh, acknowledge it. We like to bury these things, but the uh, yeah, what he says here is yet God designed our bodies to respond physiologically to those feelings in the world around us. Uh, my, my, one of my favorite lines from the entire chapter uh, is just a couple lines below in the middle of page 46, if you're looking at the book right now, that God may be screaming at us through our physical body while we look for and even prefer a more, quote, spiritual signal. The reality is that often our bodies know our feelings before our minds. Um, I, I know, Philip, you've, you've talked to being very similar to me in that we, we embody our feelings very quickly, very strongly. Um, I can tell you all the points on my body. If they hurt, I know that I'm feeling stressed out about something. Uh, even, uh, you know, to even get more personal, uh, I think of my own experience. Uh, I did poorly in school, and it really stressed me out. Uh, starting in about middle school through about half of high school, um, I was sick every single day headed to school, sick to the point of, uh, uh, of not being able to hold anything in my stomach or feeling very close to about to getting there. Um, and honestly, a lot of those tendencies still impact me today. Now, it's not like that every day anymore. Thank goodness I'm not, uh, I'm much more uh, in control of anxiety. Uh, but I can tell you that if you go and ask my wife, he'll go, he gets really squirrely every Saturday, every Saturday night uh, before church. He starts getting really weird. He starts being really standoffish. Uh, and yeah, I totally get that. I, I, I respond physiologically to my emotions often before my brain has a chance to process them. You know, maybe you're the same way. Uh, it, it helps to do some kind of internal reflection. Do you, do you find yourself uh, uh, responding to things in a certain way? I know that there's, there's things in my house that, uh, that trigger me. I don't like taking care of my animals very much. Uh, honestly, because they just they poop all the time, and I have to deal with it all the time. I don't like that, but I know I have to be able to acknowledge, and this is something that I'm working. It may seem like a really silly example to you, uh, but it's something I have to acknowledge. I get upset when I have to deal uh, with animal uncleanliness um, because I've started to take it out on my family. You know, I'm not hitting anybody, but but I get frustrated really easily. Um, the, the inner reality of my frustration and my anger does not go away if I refuse to acknowledge it. So I've just decided to take some, uh, take some initiative and acknowledge those things, uh, in my life. Uh, when I have too many unacknowledged feelings, um, one of the options he gives on the way we react to, uh, react to our inner feelings is sometimes I'm flooded by emotions that dis- disorganize and confuse me. Uh, I think that is a very fair, um, assessment of how I deal with uh, my emotions uh, physiologically. What about you? Well, I want to ask you a follow-up question to that first. Sure. I will answer your question. I, I'm happy to talk about me, but I, I, I know this about you. I know, again, to bring up the Enneagram, uh, whereas I'm an Enneagram type eight, a challenger, you're a type nine, That's right. a peacemaker, a pacifist. Do you think there's a connection between 
feeling overwhelmed by floods of emotion and maybe some of the natural tendencies that you have to ignore or disregard specifically anger or conflict until it boils over. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's right. Uh, outer and inner peace are, are things that my personality type, personality type is very drawn before. So if there's things that kind of threaten the equilibrium, uh, I am very quick to get rid of those. I'm very quick to throw away personal preference. I'm very quick to uh, cut off uh, intimacy and relationships if it gets me to the point where there is inner and or outer peace. Um, yeah, I feel those very strongly. And unfortunately, a lot of times when you cut off good or bad emotions, you internalize them for the sake of outer peace. And that's not healthy. All the right. time. Right. You have to trade one for the other yeah, is what you're saying, right? When I'm at I my can... worst, that's when I'm cutting things off and boiling and inside. I, and I, I think that I'm sort of the opposite to you. I value inner peace so much that I will create outer chaos to dump what's inside of me. I back the dump ah. truck up and just go, here it comes. And I, and not in a venting way, I just take the aggression out. Uh, last night, for example, I was home and uh, very tired from a long day. And uh, Andy had made dinner for us and was taking care of Elizabeth and getting everybody on track for bedtime. And so we sat down to eat dinner right before bedtime. And Andy made a joke that was very fair and appropriate. It's a joke I've made a million times, very, very much like a part of our kind of family culture. And I just didn't appreciate it. I felt like it was the wrong time. I didn't like it. And so I snapped at her. I, I let that inner disruption without filtering it at all. I just took, brought it to the outside and went, I'd really appreciate it if you wouldn't. Da, 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 da. And she was like, I mean, I could, you know the feeling. If you know somebody well enough, you feel them shut off. You feel their wall go up because you've attacked them. And so I, I said, well, she said something and I said, well, I can tell from the way you said that, that you didn't appreciate what I said. And she didn't even want to engage with me because she was like, I'm so not trying to have an argument with you about nothing tonight. Um, but I, thankfully she accepted my apology. I'm learning a little bit about apologizing. I'm still very slow to do it and resistant, unfortunately, but that one was quicker than normal. And all of a sudden I felt better. Now the negative of that is by having that spat, I get feedback that I'm looking for. I like how it feels to have a short fight I can manage and then make peace. That's like, that moves the ball for me. However, it forces the people around me to endure something that's not fair to them at all. Uh, and it creates conflict out of nothing, which doesn't honor God. God doesn't, I don't think want us to pick fights with people over nothing at all. I think harmony and peace are a large part of God's vision for eternity for humankind. And so obviously I'm working against that by being a bully to my wife about nothing. Um, if I can move us forward a little bit, I want to jump to page 50 about, um, and I know that Pete talks about three temptations that come into my life if I am uh, living other people's expectations or if I'm just out of touch with my true self for whatever reason. And they're not so much temptations of what to do. They're temptations about self-belief, like self-identity. Um, so if you can, Tyler, talk to us about uh, the temptation to believe that I am what I do, the temptation to believe I am what I have, the temptation to believe what I, I am what others think. And then I want to share another just quick anecdote at the end of that uh, that I, I heard Tim Keller say years ago that's kind of helped me navigate this idea of seeing myself honestly. Yeah, he uses the uh, example of Jesus' temptation in the uh, in the wilderness during his time of temptation uh, uh, from Satan, and he's kind of boiled them down into some alliterated points. Uh, but the first one, I am what I do. I think that's a very... Uh, um, I think there are a lot of different uh, demographics that would probably very quickly fall into this. I feel I feel like uh, men oftentimes they're very defined by what they do. Um, I think that that could be a very American dream kind of feel. Um, um, uh, but just the idea that uh, you know what was that the Batman movie? Uh, it's not who you are underneath; it's what you do that defines you, uh, and that's. Then when you start putting worth on the things that you do, you start to just be a shell of a human being. Like, uh, There's a lot of positive things that come out of that, for sure. What do you think, though? Let me interrupt you. If you, if you are believing that, that you are what you do, and this is such a softball question, but I, I want you to say it out loud if you can. When you lose any part of your ability to do, what immediately happens to you? Oh, that's right. Yeah, you're you're done. This is you. You suffer from depression. You start yeah. to find your identity in other things. Yeah. Uh, you're you know you've heard of midlife crises, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, your whole perspective on yourself just has to change. Do you think that? Um, do you think that that is a solvable problem? Like, if if you do see yourself as uh, I am what I do, and I have to do in order to kind of exist and have value. What does a person like that, even if you mm. just identify like a first step, what's a first simple step for a person like that to 
if they want to change that, if they can acknowledge that's not good, okay, I've made it far enough in this book, I'm realizing this isn't positive, what do I actually do first? I feel like a very helpful thing to do would just be, and I know we've been hitting on like silence and solitude really hard right now. We just went through a five-week uh, sermon series mm-hmm. on this. But I think it's just to sit and be rather than to do, to fight those temptations. One of the members of our life group, um, he says, every time I, I start trying to practice silence and solitude, just my day just catches up to me. My, the, all the million of things that are mm-hmm. on my to-do list start nag, nag, nagging at me, and I, ca- I can't focus on anything other than getting up and going and doing those things. Um, fight that. I think you go through that, you hit that wall uh, until you start to be more comfortable with just being rather than doing. Yeah, I think that's helpful. Okay, what about number two? I am what I have. I am what I have. I think this sounds more negative than the others, but I think that's unfair. Uh, the, the finding identity in the things you have, not necessarily just like what you can spend your money on, but uh, do you have the wife that is enviable? Do you have a, a high-ranking position of power at your job? Are you uh, politically, Are you? Uh, do you hold views that you find yourself uh, superior for? I, I think all of those things... Um, None of them are inherently negative things to have, but when you find your identity on the things you have, uh, maybe even uh, living vicariously through your family, uh, I I feel a lot of temptation to do that, Mm -hmm. though I don't necessarily really identify with this one. Um, (laughs) Don't be afraid to self-identify that you really value the things you have, be it items, personality traits, uh, family members, whatever. Know that. Understand that about yourself. That if, if you really care about the things you have, it, it's not the end for you. There's a path forward. Right. And, and it's not wrong to value things. Yes. Yeah. All Very true. The yeah. answer to this isn't like monastic asceticism. It's not like, okay, I'm going to just wear potato sacks and not mm-hmm. have anything. That's just sit in my cell. Well, that's the Buddhist way. And it's a way that a lot of people follow. It's sort of the way of modern secular mindfulness. It's the way of this sort of blending of Eastern meditation with modern psychology if I can starve the appetite enough, then it'll go away. Christianity teaches us that's not true. We replace this, the appetite with a different one. We can't just go negative. We can't just say, okay. well, if I'm tempted to look at pornography, I'm just going to get rid of every digital device I have. That will probably help you not be exposed and have to face that temptation all that much, but mm-hmm. it has done nothing to change your perspective, ideas, the way that you've been trained, the habits you have. They're just dormant. They just go to sleep for the winter until, lo and behold, you walk past uh, whatever that triggers that thing in your head. And it's just as strong as it always was, maybe even stronger now because it's starving to death. Mm -hmm. So I want to relate to this one a little bit personally. I do connect with the idea of finding my identity in what I have, but it's not possessions. It's access. It's opportunity. I'm a control freak sometimes. And so I feel like as long as I have the ability to make a decision to decide how my day goes, to plan my own schedule, to give myself rest where I think I want it, or to push myself really hard at work for a little while. Oftentimes the mistake I make in my marriage is I bring that decision to my wife already made. I will, instead Ah. of saying, hey, it looks like this week could be a heavy week, is it okay with you if we work together to find an evening where I could be at work an extra three hours to get this stuff done? I will bring her a plan and say, Hey, I got a big week ahead of me. I just want to let you know, it looks like Wednesday. I'm going to need to be at the office late. And then she's like, okay, you didn't check the family calendar because you forgot that we have life group. Uh, that's not going to work for me because I have a doctor's appointment at the time that you need to go pick our daughter up, which is your responsibility. And my wife is not unkind, but part of the way that we live our life is we have a lot of agency, she and I. And so I can start to feel and begin to freak out on her if I'm believing wrongly that by like committing myself to her or her plans or her schedule or our daughter's schedule or the church's schedule or whatever, I'm somehow losing my identity along the way. So I fight really hard to stay free and to be the one who's in charge of my day, my schedule, my planning. Um, Speak to us about I am what others think that I am, the last of the three temptations. That's right. He he put this one in a... a, uh, parentheses this one's called popularity and i actually disagree with just the word popularity i don't think he meant it anything negatively but i identify with this because i really care about you know i don't i don't care about showing you a polished image but i do want to control what you think of me i want you i want you so bad to think that i'm smart Mm -hmm. i want to uh with no seminary education talk like a seminarian for some (laughs) reason i try really hard not to do that it's not that cool no it's not it's not not i like to hyphenate words a lot um 
I, I really care about what you think of me and, and I don't want to look dumb. I get really embarrassed and being embarrassed, just that emotion in me, uh, floods me with a lot of more negative emotions. And so, and if I can kind of get ahead of that, like if I know I'm going to do something, I just want to be the silly guy, not the dumb guy. I want to own it. Like I meant to be, be the silly goof, but I really, you know, if you think negative of negative of of me, that impacts my self worth, and I think it's a very negative thing. Um, and I think it's worth uh, exploring for yourself. If 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 your own image, uh, he uses a couple of examples afterward. That's not really, it's not in the same section, but talking about uh, baseball legend Joe DiMaggio and Christian singer, writer, and co-host of the Seven Hundred Club, Sheila Walsh, uh, about finding their worth in. Uh, the public image that they put on. And, you know, when we got to the end of Joe DiMaggio's life, that when you actually found out who he was, the only thing that anybody ever knew about him was this image that he put forward about himself, uh, hiding hiding behind a mask of, the, of being an ego. He, he, it hit an egocentric, competitive, greedy, selfish man driven by power and money. Um, and I, I'm tempted by that. I would love for you to think that I am something that maybe I'm even not. I want to control all of that. And I want to reroute the conversation at this stage so the listeners understand we're not just trying to get in touch with ourselves. This isn't, um, yes, 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 this yes. isn't like, uh, we'll find out who you really are and then live your, live your true life. What we're, what we're connecting with is a biblical concept that we have a desire in our, in our will, in our instincts for most of us, nobody has to teach us to do this, to find our identity outside of just who we actually are, our being the present active verb of being. We don't know how to just be, and we're unhappy with who we be when we be, and so we do, or we get, or we perform. Those are the three things, right? We just do more, do more, do more, do more. That satisfies me. Mm-hmm. We get more, get more, get more, get more, get more. That maybe keeps my family happy or protects and insulates me against the future. Or we figure out what you want and then we change to fit your mold so that you're proud of us and you give us that sort of self-esteem feedback that we're looking for. Uh, That idea of perception, of trying to figure out who you really are and be who you really are, live as you really are, reminds me of uh, something that Tim Keller said one time. I think it might be in one of his marriage books, but he talks about how (laughs) when you get married, there are actually six people standing at the altar with you. There's who you think you are. That's number one. There's who your spouse thinks that you are. That's number two. And there's who you really are, number three. Then there's who you think your spouse is, number four. Who your spouse thinks that they are, number five. And who your spouse really is, number six. And each of those is a little bit of a different personality, has a different perspective on good, bad, and ugly, appreciates money differently, wants a different thing from the relationship. And the longer you're married, the more those four perceptions, who you think you are, who your spouse thinks you are, and then same thing for your spouse, they die, they shrivel up, they fade away because they don't work. In a dating relationship, in a world where you get to go home and be by yourself last thing during the day, you can save, you can almost like that. It's like when you wait to pass gas till you walk out of your date's apartment, right? In some ways we do that with more than just gas. We do that with our emotions. We do that with our opinions, our perspective, our background, our history. When you get married, there's no room you get to go into where you can pass out all of the negative that you've been holding in. Your spouse will see it all, and you will have to begin to deal with it. So for the sake of time here, I want to move us forward just a little bit. Um, Listeners, we found some great points that Pete made regarding Jesus being true to himself and being willing to push back against other people's expectations. Uh, We also really enjoyed, I think it's Mounty is the person's name who did the differentiation scale, Tyler, page 59. I don't have my book right in front of me. Uh, It is Murray Bowen. Bowen. Okay. We thought that was an interesting way to kind of differentiate the difference between what I'm feeling and what I think. The patterns of thought in my life, are they healthy? Where do they come from? But again, for the sake of time, I want to start to land the plane here a little bit. Um, Towards the end of the chapter, kind of the way that Pete wraps things up is with these four practical truths that he recommends that will help you live faithful to your true self. Um, I think originally, Tyler, you were going to kick this off first, but if you don't mind, let me try real quick just to address the first one. Absolutely. Uh, I find that one to be really relevant to the stage of life that our church just came through and hopefully is going to stay in. So, reader, if you're following along, this is page 62, and uh, Pete says this. There's a paragraph right before the italicized bolded point one. He says, quote, The issue is how to dismantle the false self, and how to allow our true self in Christ to emerge. Remember, this is not self-help. This is living into who Jesus says that I am. This starts and begins with Jesus the Christ, not just you 
and you being great and you fixing yourself. This is all about living in Jesus' example. Pete says the following are four practical truths that can help us begin the radical transition of living faithful to our true self in Christ, who Jesus has made us to be. The first of these is paying attention to your interior silence and solitude. Pete says his journey into emotionally healthy spirituality began with very simply. He said each day as part of his devotions with God, he would allow himself to feel emotion before God and then he would journal. And over time, he began to pick up on patterns and the way that God would move in a way that he was previously unable to pick up on. He didn't get it. He didn't know. He says that for him, he's continued to journal. Um, he slowed the pace of his life down a little bit in response to some of the patterns that came out in the journal. How does he feel about critical comments? What's making him angry? What's he afraid of? What's making him excited? He realized at least in part, the pace of his life was a major contributor to how emotionally available he was to everything that would happen. He was feeling stuff all the time. And this has been something that I've learned in my life. If I come home at the end of a long workday tired, it's probably not because my body is that tired. My spirit and my mind have been worn out by the playground of interacting with other people's spirits and minds all day long. My wife would tell you, sometimes when I get home, my mind and, and spirit are so exhausted that I don't even have much capacity to engage immediately. I need to go on a walk. I need to take the dog out. I need to chop firewood for an hour. Uh, whatever it is that can get my body moving and sort of help that physical exhaustion rise and match the emotional and mental exhaustion that I'm carrying. So that's been helpful for me to try to identify those patterns. And I think that's another thing that we learned. Our paradigm of, of silence and solitude was built on seven stages, two of which go hand in hand and deal with this, that when we get alone with God and we sit with him and just stay as long as it takes, we begin to sense our inner reality. Much of our inner reality is emotional. And then we have to start naming it. We have to say to God, God, I am a person who gets angry when I sit in traffic. I don't want to be. Other people probably have known that about me for years, but it's my job to tell you that I now know it about myself, and that's the beginning of seeing change happen. A uh, very well-known series of steps that lead to transformation in people's lives is the 12-step program that comes to us from Alcoholics Anonymous. If you don't know, the very first step in that process is to admit that you have a problem. If you attend an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, the very first thing you have to say in order to grant yourself entrance into the group and be able to participate is tell people your name and name the problem. Not say, my name's Philip and I sometimes have too many drinks. Or, my name's Philip and occasionally I black out from, you know, I just don't eat enough when I'm, when I'm drinking the way I should. Or, uh, sometimes at the holidays I stumble and fail. None of that is sufficient. You have to say, my name is Philip or whatever your name is and I am an alcoholic. You have to own it. You don't want to. You want to squirm. You want to hide. You put yourself in Genesis 3 and you're like, I got to hide in the bushes. God's coming. I can't let him see who I really am until I can put my mask on. I got to stay away. And if you can be in that silence and solitude place, you'll begin to identify who you are and then you can name it. And naming it is such an important step in finding real freedom from it. So that's my perspective on number one, Tyler. What comes to mind when you look over number two, if you don't mind reminding us what it is and then give us some comments if you have some. Sure. Number one was pay attention to your inner interior silence in your, excuse me, your interior in silence and solitude. Number two is to find trusted companions, kind of the opposite of silence and solitude. Um, I, I, a lot of positive life change. Can, this is going to sound like a plug. It's not. Um, I've been a part of several life groups when we made it a little smaller and had a little bit more of an intimate setting. Um, there has been massive dividends in my life just by being around people that I know are different than me, struggle with different things than me, are at different stages of life than me. But just being able to tell them, hey, guys, man, I am just so worn out this morning. Um, I don't know what's going on. And to just trust that um, the people around me care enough to pray for things that are even small, uh, that was huge for me. I remember one time I was really struggling with uh, sharing whether or not um, I was feeling something. So this is before going through any of this book, but that I had a really strong feeling and I was really upset about something. And I was just like, I think I need prayer, but it's embarrassing to have to ask this. Mm -hmm. And then I thought about it the other way around. I'm like, if I knew somebody I loved was struggling with this and they didn't tell me, I would feel insulted that they didn't give me the opportunity to care for them in yeah. any way. So that was, that was huge for me. Try, find people that you trust. Number three. Well, before you move on, I want to say one thing. Oh, sure. Aside, Tyler, I, this is not in our notes that we're sharing right now. So I'm actually interrupting you and I'm sorry about that. Uh, I would say if you're a listener and you're thinking, man, I've done the life group thing and it's never been this way for oh, me. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, there's two solutions that I would offer you, especially if you are uh, a person who attends or is a member at True North. 
Uh, I can't speak for other people at other churches, but there's probably not many of you out there following along with this book right now. Uh, I recommend two things. One is easy, one is hard. The hard one, but the one that we usually start with, is you can try to change the culture of your life group. Almost impossible to do by yourself. Once a life group is set, they've been meeting for more than six weeks, the patterns and the expectations are, are generally in stone. If the group is small, two or three couples plus you, yeah, you can have a heart-to-heart and you guys can go a new direction, but you're, it's going to be hard. You're going to find yourself falling back into the pattern that you're used to that, that wasn't good enough for you. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't have brought it up. What's easier but scarier but works really well is to start a new life group. That's okay. That's not insulting. We don't make lifelong commitments. We're not married to the people in our life group. We're just there with them, trusting that God's going to lead us in community. And if we've tried for a while and it's not happening, starting a life group is the easiest thing you can do. There's no test to pass. There's a little bit of training that we put you through here at True North and we get you launched quick and your group can be big. It can be small. It can meet every other week. It can meet weekly. You can build it around an activity. We just want you and other Christians who are walking through the same things as a part of the life of our Mm -hmm. church to do that life together. And I think the point that Tyler's making is just because I know him personally, I can say this, the transition from shallow to deep, the transition from unhelpful to helpful happened when there was a reset. When the group Tyler was a part of previously had to disband for a number of reasons, it just wasn't working. And he and his wife were able to bring on some additional leadership and and go deep with some folks. And they do that every week in an online life group, which is a unique setting for them that's been really beneficial. So if we're talking about something that to you feels unattainable or you're rolling your eyes a little bit, it may be time to take this process a little more seriously and jump in and initiate that yourself. So I interrupted you, Tyler. Go ahead and talk to us about number three, please. Oh, that's okay. I think in the interest of time, I'll probably just kind of look over these uh, so we can land the plane here. Uh, but after after finding trusted uh, what was it, companions, yeah, finding trusted companions, it is move out of your comfort zone. Um, towards the end of this point, I think a, a uh, he quotes Rabbi Zusia. Uh, and I'll just, I'll just quickly read this little paragraph for this reason. The famous Hasidic story of Rabbi Zusia remains an important, so important for us today. Rabbi Zusia, when he was an old man, said, In the coming world, they will not ask me, Why were you not Moses? They will ask me, Why were you not Zusia? And I think we find so much comfort in trying to emulate something we see, something we think that might work. Um, uh, other people's definitions of success, like we talked about earlier, other people's expectations on you. Um, but I think even a, the the less comfortable area is to truly just be ourselves and be okay with disappointing other people. In, in the in one of the points earlier in the book, uh, Jesus, uh, when talking about living true to himself, he was the best at living true to himself. And even though he was probably the best at living true to himself, he still disappointed a lot of people. And he was okay with that. And I think we need to be okay with that too. And finally, uh, the fourth uh, very practical point in being able to live more true to yourself is to pray for courage. And I'd love to kind of uh, uh, throw the ball back at you, Philip, because one of the things that uh, you have to be courageous about is the change that you could bring about in your life. And he makes the argument that uh, very positive change in an individual's life can actually still lead to backlash. And I wonder if you have maybe have some insight in what it means to receive backlash for change. He gives kind of three stages uh, uh, to the point uh, at which others around you might uh, 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 get back at you for changing. Stage one could be, you are wrong for changing, and here are the reasons why. Step two could be, change back, and we'll accept you again. Stage three is, if you don't change back, here are the consequences, which are then listed. Can you relate to that at all? Yeah, so this is where the, this is where the rubber meets the road for us, if we're, if we're really willing to find out who we are and then begin to change. Um, None of us exist in a vacuum. We all have people around us, some of whom uh, predate us on the, on the earth, our family of origin, our parents, if they're still living, maybe grandparents, aunts, uncles. Uh, there are people who like to tell us who we are, and that can be really good when you're a kid, but that can be dangerous if you're not allowed to have a voice in that once you become an adult. For instance, I hear from many people, this came up in book club two weeks ago, that when they go back to the town they grew up in and they end up staying in their old bedroom from when they were a child that's now the guest bedroom, they revert a little bit and their parents revert a little bit and don't necessarily give them room to be different from either who they were as a kid or even who they were last time that they visited. Sometimes, if we can talk to those people, especially if they're believers and they love the Lord, it's a simple change. We can just say, hey, you know, that was weird last night. I felt like 
you asking me what time I was going to be back was a little bit like maybe there was a curfew going on and your parents will go, I didn't mean it that way. That makes sense. No, no, you're free to come and go as you need to. I just didn't know if we should arm the alarm or not that you didn't even know we have now because we live here and you don't. I mean, that's easy, right? But sometimes you're going to say to somebody, hey, that felt a little bit like you were maybe stepping on my toes and then they're going to act like you stepped on their toes. They're going to go, oh, what? Well, you are my child. Okay, at that point, somebody may make it known that they don't have the capacity to let you grow up. They don't have the capacity to let you change. And this isn't the only context this will happen in, right? You become a believer. You go back to work. Your workplace employee and relationships don't necessarily understand or want you to be different than you used to. Um, Your spouse and you maybe made some compromises in your marriage morally at different points. And you're done with that now. You've gotten convicted. It's time to change. These are bad patterns. And your spouse isn't ready to face it, doesn't want to hear about it, isn't excited about these changes. Mm -hmm. We have to decide, A, are we willing or not to endure that pushback, that resistance? But B, as we become more emotionally healthy, can we, instead of trying to force another person to come along for the ride, can we exercise that new emotional health by demonstrating to them a way to be gracious to a person who does not have maybe our best interest in mind or is willing to be unkind to try to prevent us from changing. So I don't want to overcomplicate that. I think that probably that's a case by case thing, but I just want to say in general, if you are willing to go on a journey of change, not everybody's going to be excited about it the whole time. And you have to know that there may be parts of your change process that are experimental for you that don't stick. Don't expect everybody around you to be ready to get jerked left, right, left, right, left, right as you go through these changes. Give them some time and some space, even if it's your spouse, for you to figure out who you're going to be and then start to talk to them about that. Don't just show up and be different and expect everybody else to adjust. Be able to communicate and articulate why these changes are valuable and important. And the people who do have your best interest in mind, they're going to do their very best to come along for the ride with you. They're going to try not to demonize you. They're going to try not to attack you. That won't always work out that way. But the better we can communicate about the process that we're going through, I think the better it equips people who are outside of us uh, to be able to to take care of us and help us along the way. So with that said, uh, we're going to be done for today. Again, this is episode two, working through chapter two of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. You're probably listening to this somewhere in the range of Thursday, November 10th or after. Just want to remind you that we'll be back next week and we'll be talking through chapter three of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Uh, If you felt that the first two chapters were a little bit preliminary, so do I. And I think that they're there to sort of till the soil of your heart and mind and get you ready. Chapter three is tough. We're going to deal with some specific stuff and Pete's going to even give us some homework, excuse me, some homework on some things to work on and work through to start to actually take physical steps of knowing ourselves, identifying patterns of life and moving away from those things. So the title of that chapter is going back in order to go forward, subtitled breaking the power of the past. It begins on page 71. uh, If you're working through the updated edition of the paperback. So thanks again for your time. Thanks for tuning in. Tyler, thank you for joining me and talk us through. I think a two man podcast is about a quadrillion times better than just one person talking to themselves in a dark room. Uh, listeners, thanks again. We appreciate you. Hope this has been a benefit to you. You can always contact us if you have questions, comments, or recommendations at info, I-N-F-O, at truenorthalaska.com. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you next Thursday. Thanks. Bye.